welcome back to the podcast. I'm Joanna. Ooh, and I'm Scott. <laughs> and this is Edamame, the podcast where every week we have the same pod, but a new P. Um, this episode is here and it's amazing and Very our special. guest p of the week our third p in the pod um is cleo abram who is a video mm-hmm. producer and host at box she's amazing you might have seen her on box's youtube channel or in their netflix show explained she's also making her own content on tiktok at cleo abram which is amazing definitely check it out if you haven't um but this is like an incredible episode scott and i have been on a hiatus for like the last two months or so just having some pretty big life changes you can stick around to the mm-hmm. end of those but um yeah this episode yeah. is fantastic it's amazing yes and you have so much to look forward to we talk about her wedding um which is like less conventional we talk about her like journey into video journalism we talk about something really cute she does called sunday night dinners we talk about sci-fi and fantasy and with the sci-fi fantasy bit we do spoil life of pi just as a disclaimer now, we also give plenty of warning and disclaimers in the actual part before we spoil it, but it is but just like to be a like pretty big cautious. Yeah, yeah just got to be cautious, you know, because if you have been saving Life of Pi, you've been waiting to read it, to watch it, we ruin it for you. So just so you know, um, but yeah, prepare yourself to like learn literally something from every single thing she says. Mm-hmm. Another big disclaimer is that we did record this back in August. Um, and honestly, I think this is like a timeless gem, but if it we is. ever talk about like, oh, you know, like right now, like current favorites right now, that's like August favorites. That's like August life. So, and then also her audio quality is just so crisp because, oh you know, she's that gorgeous. It's beautiful. So because Cleo's a professional. She is <laughs> a professional. It, I know. Um, and my Wi-Fi was really shit during this episode. And so, you know it was difficult for me to find places to interject because I was delayed. So there's also that to look forward to. Yeah. But if this is your first time listening, guys, don't worry. You will hear our voices, but if you want to stick around to the outro, we'll talk a bit more about our lives. Then. Who we but, are. Yeah. Who we are really get to know us listeners. <laughs> okay. Anyways, enjoy this episode. It's a fantastic episode. Listen to every part of it. Have the best time. Welcome, Welcome to, to Edamame. Edamame. Welcome to Edamame. Hosted, hosted by, by Joanna, Joanna and Scott. Scott. Welcome to Edamame, a new podcast hosted by Joanna and Scott. Joanna. Scott. Edamame. Welcome back to another episode of Edamame, listeners. Today we are joined by Cleo Abram. She's a video producer and a host at Vox. You might have seen her or learned something interesting from her in Vox's Netflix show, Explained, or Vox's YouTube Originals show, Glad You Asked, or on her TikTok at Cleo Abram. Um, She's amazing, one of my role models, and we're so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I love this podcast. I think what you guys are doing is great. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Well, we wanted to actually start off on kind of an Vox unrelated note, which is first off, congrats on getting married. Congrats on the wedding. Thank you. We saw your suit. Loved the suit. (laughs) Loved the t-shirts. All the energy of the wedding was so beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. It's still very new. We got married about uh, a month ago. So thanks. Mm. Congrats. Well, we wanted to ask, 
what the greatest hits are that you ordered from your favorite New York City restaurants? Because Scott, oh needs those my works. God, yes. Uh, so for context, we did not have uh, any catering at all at our wedding. Um, we had about twenty-five people in my backyard, and it was glorious. It was like everything that I actually wanted out of a wedding, and nothing that. I felt was like an additional expectation that I didn't actually want. And one of those things was um, we just ordered in a bunch of food, um, like all of the greatest hits that we loved and have ordered forever since we've lived in New York for so long. Um, so it was cat's pastrami sandwiches next to Joe's Shanghai soup dumplings next to like mm. something fancy from Four <laughs> Charles next to McDonald's chicken nuggets and french fries and we yes. were told over and over again that it was the best food that any of our guests had had at a wedding and I have no idea if they were lying to me um but <laughs> they seemed to really enjoy it my dad in particular like everyone had a favorite of because we had such a smorgasbord of everything you could possibly want everyone was drawn to some particular thing that excited them and my dad was obsessed with the fact that we had mcdonald's like i think he hasn't <laughs> had mcdonald's in like 30 years and he was just so into the fact that he could have french fries at his daughter's wedding <laughs> <laughs> that's so amazing i actually feel like many people have this like second appreciation of McDonald's like at some point in their life you know like you grow up maybe you have it when you're a kid and then you're like oh McDonald's is bad and then at a certain point in your adulthood you're like wow McDonald's is actually incredible food it's delicious a nugget always gets me going it was important to have in the lineup mm -hmm. couldn't miss it it needed to be there <laughs> Yeah. And then we had a bunch of really excellent desserts. We had the same, we had no like wedding cake. We had the same policy for all of our desserts. So we ordered um, all of our favorite things like insomnia cookies next to like some, you know, incredible chocolate cake situation. Like it was, it was great. It was everything I wanted. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Did you like always know that you wanted to like not lean into any of the traditional aspects of a wedding? No, I, well, I really didn't have a specific idea of what my wedding would look like. Um, I, you know, didn't dream about a specific dress or even put too much pressure on that specific day. But in the end, I think um, even after all of my friends and family were vaccinated, it felt like there was a lot less pressure to put on a big event or live up to anybody's expectations of what a wedding was supposed to be like. And that was very liberating. Like I may have done the same thing in another universe where COVID didn't happen, but it felt um, in some ways like if anyone else had any expectations about what a wedding would be like, they never said anything about it. Um, whereas I don't know if that would have been true otherwise. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I actually went to my first ever wedding. Um, I think it was like maybe like a month or two ago and it was my boyfriend's sister's wedding. And it was also very similar, like very small, very intimate. And I felt like that was kind of really the ideal setting for everybody to like share these really you know, like special stories about like them growing up, them meeting for the first time. And I felt like it was like, they were talking about how they appreciated kind of having it on this tail end of the pandemic because it was 
kind of an excuse to have a smaller wedding and yes, not offend very much. many of the people that they would have been, you know, obligated to invite otherwise. So kind of that's, that's how I felt. I mean, I, there were lots and lots of friends that I didn't get to invite and there's been nothing but positivity from them. Like a lot of warmth and a lot of congratulations and no one seems upset that they weren't invited at all. Um, and I think that that it, it was really special also because we had um, a Quaker meeting instead of toasts. Um, so I didn't grow up particularly religious, but I went to a Quaker school and we had Quaker meeting every week where um, the entire school sat together in silence and anyone who felt moved to speak could get up and speak to the whole school. And so instead of having toasts, we had a Quaker meeting with all of the guests at our wedding. Um, and we sat in silence for about 45 minutes. Um, and it really wasn't much silence because there was somebody talking and giving basically what would have been a toast throughout. Um, but it meant that we didn't assign anyone to speak. It was just, if you want to speak, if you have something to say, we would love to hear from you. Um, and the result was so many people had things to say that I wasn't expecting, You know, people that I didn't really anticipate uh, the people that I wouldn't have asked to give a toast had some very moving things to say. And I'm really glad that we did it that way. Mm. It's also like cool because you just, all your guests can be sort of like in the moment and don't have to think about the pressure of like having to give a speech and just get to like speak from the heart. That's they really weren't beautiful. allowed to prepare. <laughs> That's a good rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it's super interesting that you grew up going to a Quaker school. What is, what does that mean? Slash, what is that like? I've never really heard anything about it. Um, the school that I went to was very academically rigorous, but also focused on um, the values of Quakerism, which are predominantly um, simplicity, uh, community, giving back to a community. And I, I was grateful for that as a kid. Um, and I, I didn't know how grateful I was until I went to college. Um, and I was looking for a lot of that same like silence and thoughtfulness and um, spirituality that I kind of got in high school, even though I didn't know that I wanted it. And then I went to college and it wasn't in my life anymore. And I tried to go mm -hmm. to like a bunch of Quaker meetings in New York and I never really found it again. So I've kind of recreated it in my own personal life with like at my wedding and um, in some of our habits, but um, going to a Quaker school meant that you were, you know, it was high school, like every other high school, but then also had some elements of like two class periods every week, we sat in silence all together. And that seems really mm -hmm. simple, but um, made a big difference, especially I remember when I was graduating, um, no, when I was applying to college and everything felt like the biggest deal in the whole world. And you like didn't take any time for yourself. And it felt like the whole year was so hectic. Um, being forced to sit in silence for two hours every week, I think was very psychologically healthy. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, I think, because also um, I feel like you had a very unique upbringing being in DC growing up and then mm -hmm. also having um, parents that like worked in politics or in law. Um, how do you feel like that kind of impacted you and, and what kind of aspects of your upbringing do you want to bring to actually raising your own children? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure yet if I want to have children. I just made an episode. I'm glad you asked about that decision mm -hmm. um, and how complicated it is. But I think 
DC is a very interesting place because there it's a it's a transient city in some ways, um, but also it's full of really interesting people working on big problems. And I think that I I was lucky to get exposed to a lot of different ones as a kid. Um, grew up in DC shortly after 9-11. Um, and I think that that probably shaped the things that I was interested in. I was very interested in um, global politics in college. I majored in political science. And so I think that it kind of steered my interests in that way. Um, I think that the opposite side of that coin was that I didn't see that many people doing jobs that weren't um, like lawyer, doctor, politician, miscellaneous mm -hmm. business person. Um, right. And so I didn't know anybody who was a video journalist, for example. Like there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of jobs that I found out later were jobs. And so one of the things that I think is particularly cool about what you guys are doing on the podcast is exploring a lot of different types of careers. Um, it took me a long time to figure out what the options even were. What did that process of figuring it out even look like? And how did you know that this was something hmm. that you wanted to do and that you could be good at? I, so I majored in political science um, and I went to go work right after school at a political consulting firm. And we worked on a bunch of different projects and a bunch of different campaigns. And um, I really, really enjoyed that work. It was a lot of storytelling work. It was a lot of digital marketing. It was a lot of like using my interest in politics on the internet. But mm -hmm. eventually I looked around and I realized that I didn't, I didn't want to do the five years out version of what I was doing then. I like looked ahead to the mm. career that I would have. And I thought like, that's, I could work really hard to get there, but the best possible version of that outcome wouldn't be what I want to do. So I looked around for um, opportunities that I was really excited about and I loved Vox. And so I applied to Vox as like a um, sort of amorphous business role. Um, Vox was trying to figure out how it made money at the time um, and was working on things like selling shows, launching new podcasts, um, selling, you know, like shows to advertisers to sponsor them, things like that. Um, and so I came on to help work on that problem and found it really fascinating, loved what I was doing at Vox, loved all of the people that I was working with. Um, and a lot of those people were video folks. Like a lot of the projects that mm -hmm. I was working on were um, either developing the Netflix show that became Explained or um, selling, you know, sponsorships around our video series, things like that. And I just got really obsessed with what they were making and what they were doing. And I like found myself naturally going down this rabbit hole of um, how, how do you, like, what does animation actually entail? Like, how do you use Premiere? Like all of these, um, I really wanted to learn how to do the thing with my hands that they were doing with their hands. And so I took night classes. I went to the School of Visual Arts um, mm. and learned how to edit and animate with like no real hope. Like there was no direct path to becoming a video producer from where I was. Mm. <laughs> um, but I really wanted to learn how to do it. And I learned how to use Premiere well. I um, am still, you know, getting better and better at animation. Um, and I pitched a bunch of videos to a part of Vox Media, which was called Racked, which focused on fashion and fashion news and made a series um, about the intersection of political issues with the fashion industry. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And Racks, unfortunately, folded shortly thereafter. And I kind of made the case to Vox that I should be allowed to continue making videos um, in kind of the same vein that I had been making them before. Again, like totally outside of the technical parameters of my job. This is sort of in addition, like nights and weekends. Um, And then I became a person who made videos for Vox, even though that wasn't technically my job, I was still working on the development side. Um, And I got the opportunity to pitch topics of the second season of our Netflix show. And um, I pitched, I like worked my ass off and I pitched a bunch of uh, ideas and one of them ended up getting greenlit. And to Vox's credit, they looked around and they said, um, we told all of the people that made videos that if they got a pitch greenlit, that they could produce it. Um, I guess this person now gets the opportunity to produce it. And so I got this incredible opportunity because they looked at the videos that I had made and thought that I could do it, even though there wasn't really that much evidence that I had <laughs> done anything similar before. Um, but I got this big opportunity and, um, and the rest is kind of history. And so I've, I've been a producer of Vox ever since. Wow, that's incredible. And that's kind of a really big project to jump in on. <laughs> um, but that's so interesting. Yeah, I like didn't sleep for like six months. I was so anxious. And then I actually had a question about how you kind of go about finding the right experts to ask for these kinds of topics. It's different for different topics. I mean, I think that one of the most important qualities of telling a good story is to have someone that is obsessive about that topic. Um, And so that person could be an academic. Um, Maybe they've been doing research on that for 10 years. That person could also be a hobbyist who, you know, has a huge collection, for example, of Ouija boards, but they have the biggest collection in the Northeast because they've been (laughs) developing it for the last like 50 years. And that's what they do. You know, so it it really depends um, per story in where you find those people and what their expertise is. They might be a founder. They might be a policy uh, advocate. and they, they, you know, could have any job, but what's required is that sort of obsessive quality about the topic. Um, so one of the first places that I'll look is, um, you know, the people that are publishing the research that I'm reading that has gotten me interested in the topic. Um, I'll usually reach out to them first and ask if they, you know, would be interested in talking, do a pre-interview with them. Um, one of the questions that I always ask at the end of an interview is, is there anyone else that you think that I should talk to based on this conversation? Um, And sometimes that recommendation will be uh, another professor or another researcher. Um, And sometimes it'll be somebody who they know who they've spoken to as a personal story of what we're talking about or something like that. Um, So it's kind of pulling threads. It's usually I would start with an academic or a scientists whose research I've read, and then you kind of pull the threads from there and find the most interesting, most obsessive person that you think is a good representative of the experts that you would want on camera. Like do the kind of like beautiful, like sound bites and nuggets that you get sort of just happen organically, or how do you kind of like pull those quotes that you can just sort of like seamlessly embed so well into the story? Um, I'm also just curious about like, are there people that, um, 
just don't necessarily translate well, like in the actual setting, mm-hmm. even though they're filled yeah. with so much interesting knowledge. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it does matter how the person communicates. Um, you can create a story around a bad communicator. It's not a make all be all, but um, it does help if this is someone who is comfortable expressing and explaining their own their own research. Um, but I think the the to your question about how to do a good interview and how to get out those sound bites, I do explain to people beforehand that a video interview and what we're trying to do is different from a podcast, is different from a text interview. Um, and I say, for example, um, if you find yourself, as I do, stumbling over a word, or you know, you think you could clarify what you're talking about, feel totally free to take a pause. We'll cut it and say that whole sentence again. And people mm-hmm. do make use of that. And I will show them how to do that by saying, oh, whoop, let me ask that question again. Like, hold on, pause. Now I ask the question. It's more a, um, it's, it's aware that what you're doing is capturing a video as opposed to a sort of seamless conversation that just kind of flows. Um, mm. And I think one of the interesting ways to do that, that I have learned through, I probably did like 120 interviews in 2020 because I was doing a daily show for, uh, for Vox. It was called Answered. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I got a lot of practice with like how to get people to do this like quickly. Um, And one of the things that I always do is I always say, you know, you can feel free to pause and repeat your sentence. I also will tell them what we're trying to accomplish with a question. Um, because it's a very collab, explaining is a very collaborative process. Like I'm not, this is not the, I never do gotcha interviews. It's just not a part of what my job description is. Um, and so when I am working with someone, we are trying together to explain something visually. And so I'll tell Mm -hmm. them like, um, we're planning to animate, uh, the process by which a plastic bottle becomes microplastics in the ocean. Could you walk through that process with me as though we're we're seeing it on screen? Feel free to say, like, use visual language. Um, like, imagine that you use a water bottle and then you throw it away. What happens next is it goes through, blah, 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 blah. And then they, they can do that. And they're imagining the visuals in their head and then we create them later. Um, but like, I let them know what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and if they don't want to do it, they'll answer a different way. Um, but that's one way to get them to speak more visually than you might in a conversation. Wow. That's super interesting. And I think that definitely a video interview has that like extra dimension where it's a huge part of it is that visual storytelling that for us, we kind of don't really care about how we look on camera. We can chop up, you know, the edit and it won't look funny if we just kind of um, edit that audio, but that's really interesting. And both have their pluses and minuses. Yeah. Um, like the nature of having like a more explanatory video, like with a podcast, like you don't necessarily, I don't know, or it depends on the type of podcast, but like you kind of like, maybe don't necessarily want to ask things in a leading way. Cause you sort of just want to see organically, where does it go? Mm-hmm. But I think that's really interesting from just like um, the way that you interview for that platform, like that's a really smart and tactical way to get like the things that you need. Cause I'm sure you're constrained by like time and budgets and all this stuff. Totally. And it's, it's steering them in the format without leading them in the question, I think is the dynamic. Like you would never want to, um, 
tell them what to say in any way. You just want to give them like guideposts for how their voice is going to be used so that they can make their own decisions about like stylistically, if something is going to be animated on screen while they're talking, it's nice for them to know that they don't always have to. And I don't always know what I'm going to animate out of what they say. But um, if you do know, if you have something planned, if you're going to use a specific chart, for example, I'll just pull the chart up during the interview and we'll look at it together. And I'll say, can you describe for me like what your impressions are of this chart? Or can you describe for me the trajectory here so that I can use their voice instead of mine when we're showing the chart, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. I almost always, if you would, were to look at my questions for interviewees, I would almost always have a visual in the question doc. Like there's almost always a chart that I wanna show them and talk to them about or like a sketch that I've made of what an animation would look like. And I'm gonna show them to them and say like, is this correct? Um, how would you visualize this? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I also was just like curious, like where you kind of see, um, how you see like the format changing. Cause I think like um, it's changed a lot because you can actually interview people. You can embed these sound bites. You can have visuals and animations, but I'm just kind of curious like how you see the format continuing to evolve. Well, I think there's so much more interesting space for experimentation now than there was even a few years ago. Like I've been really genuinely enjoying making explainers for TikTok and it's a totally different skill with totally different um, uh, norms, I think, which is interesting. Like there's the there's a habit on TikTok, a comedy format really, where there are multiple, you, you yourself play multiple people if you guys spend time on TikTok, you've definitely seen this format. Um, yeah. And that can be really great for explainers because then you can explain things to yourself in a way that would look absolutely unhinged if you were to do that in a YouTube video <laughs> yeah. or on Netflix yeah. or something. Um, and so that I think is very um, invigorating creatively to just feel like, oh, what are the what are the tools people are using? What are the ways people are expressing themselves? Like, how might you use that to be educational? Um, and I think... I mean, even little things like um, Netflix is experimenting with how long episodes of shows can be because we're mm -hmm. no longer tied to an hour long linear TV format with 15 minutes mm -hmm. of, of ads. Um, and so why do episodes need to be 45 minutes? Well, maybe because people like that. And if it turns out they like that, I'm sure Netflix will continue doing it. But maybe people want something that's like, I think each episode of Loki is like over an hour. Um, mm -hmm. because people just want like a movie to watch every week, in which case, right. awesome, let's do that. Or let's have options that are like that and options that are just uh, every episode of Explain, for example, is 15 to 20 minutes long. Um, and I think that flexibility is really cool. And I'm excited to see where that goes. Mm, definitely. The TikTok thing is really so interesting. I think because it's, I feel like it's, revolutionized a lot of these different video creators into thinking more like short form and trying to do that and I also think that people are learning so much on TikTok like I think that I find myself saying the phrase like oh saw this thing on TikTok several times a day <laughs> many times yes, a day totally. um, <laughs> but it's also it's 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 definitely very difficult to take a very huge concept and then condense it into like 60 seconds or now maybe it can be like three minutes so how do you usually find yourself going about making like a really nuanced idea easy to understand and simple and short well sometimes 
I'm definitely running longer than a minute. Like I got the access to the three minute posting early and now I think everybody has it, but I definitely aim for a minute and end up making things that are a minute and 45 seconds. Um, But I, I think that it's about not as with everything, I think that it's about not biting off more than you can adequately chew. Um, I, I try my best, especially when making TikToks to have it be basically one fact like sometimes I'll tell stories, but they'll be about one specific person at a specific moment in time and like what they discovered or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think uh, the scope of a story just expands and contracts depending on how much time you give it and what the format you're using is. Um, so I just would choose totally different topics. It's less about condensing a huge topic than choosing your topics well. Like for example, um, on YouTube originals, when I have 20 minutes, I can explain to you like how the infrastructure of the internet works. But if I'm doing the same thing on TikTok, Mm -hmm. even if I want to cover something like the same topic area, I'll pick like, um, how does a signal get from my laptop to my Wi-Fi router? Like, okay, it travels via radio waves. That's basically, that's like kind of a whole TikTok. You can say- how does a radio wave carry binary information? Because we know that generally people are, understand that inside their computer, uh, things are binary. Well, then that's all that you explain in 60 seconds, like just that tiny little sliver. Um, and then hopefully people want to come back for more and they find your next video and your next video is about the next step in the path of the internet through the infrastructure. Um, but it's, I think it's about being specific and, and not trying to do too much. Yeah, I think it's so effective. Like I, your um, your explanation of like qubits still sticks with me because like I think <laughs> it was just it was so well explained, and I I would never think that I could ever understand a quantum computer, but like it just made so much sense. Um, but something I wanted to ask is like, what do you think makes like a story satisfying, or like how do you make a video for a viewer like satisfying? I think it's a, I think it's a great question. It is. It is the great question of my career. How do you make <laughs> this topic interesting? Um, I think that there's a difference between what makes a really good story and what makes a really good video. First of all, um, I am a long form text journalism reader and I subscribe to it and I love it. And um, I think that those stories, there's something really special about stories that deserve like 20 pages in the New Yorker. Um, those aren't the types of stories that I would pick, not only because they're huge, but also because, um, what makes a good video is something that is inherently visual. Like if you and I are chatting like this, I can tell you a story and it's going to be fascinating. And maybe it would even make a really good documentary, for example, where you're following that character around, but Mm -hmm. for a short form explainer video, the moment that it's going to be a good video, as opposed to a good text article or long form story is when I have to draw something so that you understand it. Or when I have to show you on my phone, a piece of archive so that you actually get what I'm talking about. Um, If it doesn't have something like that, it's probably not worth the investment that a video requires because a video is just way harder to make than like writing a Uh, an article, not actually, I shouldn't say that about long form articles because those (laughs) take a really long time. But um, in order for something, in my opinion, to deserve to be a video, it needs to be, you need to see something, otherwise you won't understand the story. Mm. 
And that I think to answer your question is what makes a video gripping. Like if, if you are required to look at it, that scratches, at least for me, that scratches the intellectual itch. Like my eyes and my ears are doing different things when I watch a video and that is satisfying because I'm learning in a very immersive way. Um, the other thing that I think about video is like, it requires a lot of attention. Like podcasts Mm -hmm. are wonderful because I can put in a podcast and like walk my dog or do my dishes or like all of this stuff. And they become a part of my life in a really wonderful, intimate way. A video is not like that. Like a video is I need all of your attention for six minutes or 20 minutes or something. And to do that, you have to deserve people's eyeballs. Like, otherwise, why are you demanding that attention from them? Are you a visual thinker? Like usually when you're learning a concept, do you kind of make those diagrams in your head yeah um and in fact like you asked earlier how I knew this was the right job for me like something about it just clicked like something about it just feels right based on how my brain works like if you ask me to spell something I have to write it even very very basic words um if you want to like very regularly my friends make fun of me for this because very regularly I'm in the habit of doing like basically like charting something in real life. Like for example, if, um, if we're trying to choose a restaurant, this is a bad example. I wouldn't actually do this, but if we were trying to hypothetically, if we were trying to choose a restaurant, I might be like, Oh, like of all of these restaurants, like I want to go here because of all of the restaurants in New York that I can think of, like if you charted, like, um, most likely to get a reservation and like best food, like the restaurant that I'm proposing would be here. Like that's the way that I express myself. Um, and that is a good fit for being a video producer and a bad fit for basically anything. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I, that's fascinating because I don't think I think visually like that at all. And I really, I think process concepts when I like talk through them or when they're spoken to me and, you know, see, look what this is. I just think it's so interesting that our brains are just wired in all of these different ways just to process information. But I feel like a good thing about video is that it appeals to such a wide variety of learners, right? Like people who process things auditorily, they're hearing that being spoken to them. Visually, you're seeing that. It's very personal because you're hearing from, from people and you're seeing those interviews. So I feel like it's just kind of a good umbrella of things um yeah totally I yeah. I wanted to ask um are you sometimes just finding inspiration for TikTok videos or for pitches just based on things that you're personally curious about like oh I want to learn about a quantum computer I am never at a loss for things that I want to learn about but I am very often at a loss for things that I think would make a good video right or I'm like so scattered in the things that I want to learn about that it requires making a video requires at least, at least a day, probably, you know, depending on like anywhere from three months, if I'm making stuff to Netflix to a day, if I'm making stuff for TikTok. Um, and those, uh, those decisions take a lot out of me because there's so much that I'm curious about and so much that I want to learn that like, picking something is hard. Um, and also I think that there are lots of things that are great questions, um, but fewer things that have good, interesting answers. Um, and even fewer things that have good, interesting visual answers. So you can have like Mm. a million fascinating questions. And I do, I have a spreadsheet of just like all the questions that I think of it like every day. Um, 
but only about a tenth of them have interesting answers. Some of them are just like, oh yeah, that's that way because like it is. Um, and only about a tenth of those have good visuals. So right. That's like kind of where I was going with my satisfying question because I was like, oh, if there's no conclusion or there's no answer, like, do you think that it can still be satisfying? Or like would people be invested enough to just go on the journey of looking? Like, is that enough? That's kind of like what I was curious sometimes, about. Sometimes, sometimes if a question is emotional, I think yes. Like there are some mm. stories that I've done, like um, glad you asked this a lot this way. Like there's a, an episode about beauty and beauty standards and like mm. what beauty culture is and means and um, does to us psychologically where it's a very open-ended conversation. It's kind of about our reflections on online beauty culture and its impact. Um, and that, you know, doesn't come to one particular conclusion. We have kind of a thesis about the, the way in which we think about beauty culture, but, um, it's very open-ended and the same thing, uh, about the story of whether or not I want to have kids. It's a, it's an open-ended conversation about how somebody makes that decision. Um, but I think the substitution of a satisfying answer is like moral, or emotional um, complexity. Like things can be satisfying if you just explore emotions for a while, or they can be satisfying if they have a really interesting answer. Mm -hmm. But if something just has like a complicated answer that's not very satisfying, that's that's not good. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, um, the Do You Want Kids was so beautiful and like that interview with your mom was like just so touching. Um, and I think like the part, I think that really resonated with me was like, um, kind of like, or also with your kind of like, Hey kid in general, like that series that you're doing, like, I think it's so interesting and unique to like get the chance to meet your parents before they had you. Like, and I recently had the chance to do that in a way because I like discovered a bunch of my mom's journals and didn't really tell her, but I like read through all of them. And I feel like it was so emotional for me to kind of like, um, yeah, like to get to meet her before she had me and to like see how all of these elements in her life kind of came together and like what part of her story that I play. And I don't know, it was like a very emotional. Um, That's incredible. What a yeah. wonderful gift. I, I wonder, now we're just brainstorming, but if your mom is game, I mean, I, I think that like, it would be cool if using your graphic design experience, you like made some art based on your emotional journey there? I really, I actually, <laughs> I really want to turn it into like a piece because some yeah. of it, so much of it was like tied to um, like my family, like her coming from Hong Kong in high school and like reading about her, they were literally her high school journals and getting to like almost being like the same age as her writing yeah. and like it was just such an emotional thing and I, I wanted to do something with it. Like I, I wanted to... I don't know. I also like, I wanted to like talk to her about it, but we just like don't have that relationship. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's so interesting to me that you're doing this like YouTube series for your hypothetical, even if you don't have kids, but like that you are even doing that. I think that that's really special. Thank you. Well, send, send me whatever you end up, if you end up making something from that, send it to me. I will. That, that sounds really I special. Will. I, um, I, yeah, so I'm making this series called Hey Kid, which is supposed to be a video, like a vlog for my future kids. Um, the problem with it is that I get really nervous and then I don't make them. 
So there are like four episodes of it. Um, the most special episode I think is I did, um, this is the one that I would preserve and really want my kids to see if they, if they want to, which is, um, my partner and I did a like sit down reflection after we got engaged. And that one I think is really special. Like we should do one after getting married. Maybe we'll do one again really soon. Um, but that's the one that I think is like most emotional for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's like so much, um, it's like so much pressure to have it be public. And like, I think, yeah, I think you should really just capture everything, like capturing your thoughts. Like I I remember like watching that one and that one was like, it was so interesting to like, like, I think it would be so special to have your kids get to see like the big things, but also just kind of like the super mundane, you know, day to day. Cause like when I was reading my mom's journals, like she was like, most of it was that the mundane, like today I rode the bus, like today I interacted with this person at school. But like, that was what was so fascinating to me is like getting to see who she was not in the big moments, but in those kind of like day to day things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really special. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you about that. Like you're kind of in this unique position of appearing on camera and therefore becoming, you know, like a bit of a public figure. And, you know, is that, is that challenging? How do you kind of manage that? I mean, I think what's interesting is like, I definitely don't see myself that way. Like I'm always astonished when someone recognizes me in public. Like I, I, it's happened it's, it's like started to slowly happen more often. And it happened the other day, like two or three days ago, um, when someone recognized me, uh, when I was having coffee with a friend because of TikTok. And I was like, oh my God, like you're also (laughs) on TikTok. Like, (laughs) um, I, I wonder if that's like a product of the pandemic. Cause I just like, haven't seen that other, that many other human beings. Um, or it's kind of a product of like, like the, that's, I think it's common in putting things out on the internet. Like it feels a little bit anonymous sometimes. And so when that interacts with your day-to-day life, it's like a little bit surprising. Um, but I think one of the great benefits of, like, I think I could tell a lot of the stories that I tell without being on camera, not the more emotional ones, but some of the other ones. I think one of the advantages of developing the skill, and I have worked really hard to develop this skill. I don't put myself in videos just to do it. Um, I think the skill of being on camera and being comfortable being on camera and not feeling stiff is like a really important way to connect with an audience and bring them along with you so that they follow a story to its conclusion because they people care about people. And so if you're sort of an interesting proxy for the audience, they'll continue to follow you and they'll care about you discovering something new and then they'll discover something new, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So for me, there are lots of different shows that I would make in the future that don't involve me being on camera at all. Um, But for now, I'm really excited to continue to develop that skill because I think it genuinely helps the story um, and helps people pay attention to the story. And when it doesn't help the story, I won't do it. Yeah. How do you think you like lose that stiffness or like, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like sometimes like I, even in, not even when I'm recording myself, but like in real life, like, even though personally, like I'm very open and like not stiff at all, like I will be like that. And I'm just curious kind of how you have broken that down. Making a daily show where I had to be, I interviewed <laughs> 
two people a day and I recorded like one stand up, like full episode. I shot it myself uh, in like quarantine, total, like it was just me and my camera every single day was like a crash course in how to not be stiff on camera. Um, I think, so I think just sheer practice and volume. And if you look at the early episodes that I made of Answered versus the latter ones, I have so much more personality six months later. Um, and it's not that I was boring at the beginning of 2020 and then interesting at the end of 2020. I was just, I was more comfortable like stumbling and and like laughing about it. Like I just, I am more of a full human being and I think that's very important. Um, mm. So repetition. Um, and then also one of the things that I do is I imagine that a friend of mine is directly behind the camera. Like I try and make the camera space actually feel like a friend and not just any friend. I don't just try and have positive vibes at a camera. I literally imagine like my friend Katie talking to my friend Katie or like my friend Alexa or like my sister Zoe. Like I, I imagine a specific person and try to imagine how I would talk to them if I'm explaining this to them. This doesn't work by the way, for somebody who's in a much more kind of professionalized um, anchor type job or, or things right. like that. Like it's a specific tone that I have decided to cultivate um, that works, that, that Vox um, tonally uh, tries to do, but that's just the way that I do it. Mm. I mean, it's super awesome that you kind of have this on record that you can watch yourself improve yeah. literally day to day. <laughs> throughout the entire year but that's that's really I think that's important like I feel like it's inspiring to other people as well because like when you look back for example like if you're a photographer and you look back on people's Instagram feeds and you scroll all the way back to the very beginning like you see their growth as mm -hmm. opposed to just seeing somebody who like archived everything and didn't show you the growth like I think it's really important to like see not just the polished finished products but to see that like process of how you know because like I feel like it helps remind people that like not yeah. everything is instantaneous today. Like you have to like still work for the things that you want. Totally. Yeah. It helps you understand that you're a beginner, you know, it helps you like appreciate where you're starting at and like, just be like, don't get down on yourself. You know, like we're all starting yeah. from one place while we'll continue to improve and we just keep working on it. Yeah. To change the direction. <laughs> we had a couple of random questions we wanted to ask you. Um, we wanted to ask you, um, I, we've heard so much about how you love sci-fi and fantasy. How do you feel like that shows up in your day-to-day -day life or even in your work? Ooh, um, I, I think that the, the reason that I love sci-fi is I think I had this wonderful teacher in high school who um, he taught a sci-fi and fantasy lit class in high school. It was the best thing in the world. Um, and his thesis about why bother to teach sci-fi and fantasy right next to like the great, great American literature, because besides the fact that it is, it can be great American literature is um, he felt that sometimes the way that you can express ideas in sci-fi can be more true than expressing it through a true story. Um, so for example, uh, the book Life of Pi um, is a fantasy book. Uh, I'm about to spoil the end of Life of Pi. So if anyone out there has not <laughs> cover uh, your read ears. this book, cover your ears, go read it, pause and come back, skip ahead 30 seconds. Um, the, the book is 
as though the main character is interacting with animals, but then it's revealed at the end that he's actually interacting with human beings. Um, and the reason why it's important that it's a fantasy book that he's been interacting with animals this whole time is that it is graphically brutal. Like there is cannibalism involved in this story, but it doesn't feel like cannibalism because it's like characters of animals, like killing each other. Um, and then it's revealed at the end that like, this is the way that humans behaved when they were stuck on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Um, and that I think is like, it's an interesting case study in why fantasy can be really helpful because the human brain just would not absorb that story if it weren't a fantasy story. Like we just, you would totally disconnect. It would no longer be interesting. Like the feelings would be so intense that you would just like stop reading. Um, but because it's about animals, you can kind of engage it, like sort of experiment with those feelings. Like, how do you feel about one? Like, like how do you feel about these situations? Um, and you can, you can get more out of it, I think, because it's fantasy than you would if it were a true story um, or, or even presented in like a realistic way. Um, and I think that for me, sci-fi feels like it's almost as though you have like a, a map of the world on like a stretchy fabric. You asked me if I was a visual thinker, clearly. <laughs> yes. Um, it's like a map of the world on a stretchy fabric and you like stretch a specific part of it so that it looks warped and misshapen, but you can see the detail a lot more um, of like what's inside that particular section. So if I were making a sci-fi about um, uh, like X-Men, for example, is a fantasy sci-fi uh, show where they're experimenting with the idea of what makes people different from each other and like what happens mm -hmm. when people have more power than the other. And they're sort of stretching the world in this interesting way to show you what realistic um, fallout from that might be, right? It makes total sense that people feel a lot of fear about that. And there's a political backlash and they have to deal with that and all, all the kinds of things that, that happen. Anyway, so I think sci-fi is itself an exercise in exploring the real world. Um, mm. And I think... A lot of people don't see it that way, but I, I wish that they did because I think it's a very serious and interesting genre. Um, and then in terms of the way that it plays into my job, I think that like a lot of my work is preoccupied with explaining things. Um, yeah. And I think sci-fi is like explaining fake things. Like yeah. I think that, uh, that all the sci-fi that I like is like very hard science fiction. Like it's like, the Martian, where you explain how something would work that hasn't happened yet, or um, Seven Eves, where they explain the physics of what would happen if like the moon blew up. Like it's, it's explaining things, but it's just explaining fake things. Um, <laughs> and so I, I get a lot of inspiration from that. And I just, I also, it scratches the same itch. Mm. Yeah. That was so I interesting. Think, yeah. I feel like sci-fi writers have so much imagination in order to travel so far like mm -hmm. on a hypothetical and just to do exactly that to like explain all those fake things to like build that world that it's just honestly very impressive to anybody who's constructing that in their mind but yeah I totally agree another random question that I wanted to ask was like I know you used to like pre-pandemic I'm sure did you, you did like Sunday night dinners um yeah. and I'm just curious like two multiple things but like kind of like how did that change in the pandemic and how did you still stay close to those people but also like how did you even like cultivate 
a group of people that wanted to do something like that. Cause I feel like that's just such a dream, like to have such a meaningful meal, like once a week with people, friends. I'm just so curious about that. That became very, very important to me. And I think that was the thing I missed most in the pandemic. Like I felt very lonely without that. Um, the, the structure was six to eight people. Eight is about the number of people that can have one conversation. If you have more than eight, it usually breaks up into little mini conversations. So we usually cap it at eight so that everybody's talking to each other as opposed to like picking and choosing the people that they came with to talk to each other. Um, and usually people don't know each other. I mean, some of them will have met before, but the goal is for people to meet new people and for us to make one cohesive like friend group. Um, so we're constantly trying to bring people in. Um, I think that what makes people comfortable with it is, um, I think the routine is important. Like every Sunday we do this thing. I'm not scheduling it with you. I'm inviting you to do this thing that will happen with or without you. Like it's, it takes the pressure off in some way where like right. people just, and now I've created a, I mean, before the pandemic, um, but people would just text me when they were free on Sunday. And I'd be like, yep, like we have fewer than eight, like come over. Um, and that was really special. It, it like, all of this happened post-college but it felt like we were kind of working to recreate some of the same, like, oh, just stop mm. by that I had in college. And that sometimes can feel missing from an adult life because we all go and get jobs and then we're kind of siloed from our friends. And um, you like have to plan to get dinner with one friend. And then that friend isn't, you can't find time when your schedules line up for a week, whatever. Um, because we have a set time when we always have dinner on Sundays, people, if they want, can kind of like plan their schedules around that. They know it's happening. Like they know three weeks in advance that Sunday night dinner will be happening if they want to come. If they don't, no problem. Like it'll still happen. Um, so I think that's number one. Um, and then I think just generally, I, so I, I don't drink and I think that finding a way to socialize that felt natural to me was really important as an adult, like not trying to sort of shoehorn my own social preferences into like going out all the time, but instead being like, oh, I actually, I noticed that I do best in small group conversations and I really enjoy those and I feel energized by that most. Um, so how can I just kind of create something that would attract people like that? Um, I also, the third thing about it that I will say is it's very helpful to have something that you can invite people to that isn't very high pressure so that you can make new friends. Like one of the ways mm -hmm. that I found very easy to make someone who I admire into my friend is to be like, oh, I actually, I do this like Sunday night dinner every week. Like come or don't go like no pressure. Like, tell me when you're free. Like if you're free on any Sunday, like, let me know, like you'll meet some cool people. Um, and it's like my secret weapon to make something. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It is super low pressure because then it's not like you're setting up a one-on-one -on, -one on them. Like, Hey, let's you and me get to know each other, tell our exactly. live stories. It's just like, exactly. it's, this is a casual environment. Stop by. <laughs> I like the yeah. attitude. I like the consistency of it. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And I think it's so cool that you, yeah, because like I, I'm realizing that too, is that I do really well in like small groups where you kind of just get to converse and get to know each other rather than kind of like, 
other like social situations. And I think that that's really cool that you've found a way to kind of like make a circumstance for yourself that really works. Yeah. And it just sounds like such a special thing. But to answer your question before, how have we kept it going during the pandemic? We like haven't, like it's, it's not possible. Um, so I have kept up with a lot of my friends and either, Mm -hmm. you know, see them as much as is possible and safe, but also, um, I just really miss it. And I'm excited to bring it back whenever it feels reasonable. We have done a couple of like little Sunday night dinner-esque things outside. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, one day it'll be back. Well, when they come back in full force, maybe yeah. I'll come to one. I would love that. Seriously, <laughs> that would be super fun. That would be super special. I'll let you know. I have your email address. I think, Amazing. I mean, I thought that they were going to come back in the fall, but I don't know. I don't know now. We'll see. We'll see. I'll let you know. Um, Joanna, do you want to wrap up with rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay. So okay. this is, is our last segment and your goal is to think as little as possible. Just off Excellent. the top of your head, answer the question. Okay. All right. Yeah. Do a little stretch. Get ready. <laughs> um, what is something that you always carry with you? Oh, my fidget spinner ring. Um, I'll show this to you. I'll make, I'll put the sound near it. It um, spins. I don't know if you can hear that. And then it also, it clicks. And this is very satisfying to me. I carry it everywhere. It helps me pay attention. ASMR demonstration. For people who can only hear, my my dog has decided now is the moment to sit on my lap. And Well, next question. Why is your dog named Thor? He is a very small dog and he needed a very big name. Mm. Where can you get the best green curry? Ooh, uh, there is a place um, that I, oh God, I always order from this place on Seamless and I genuinely don't know its name because it's always just like a reorder on Seamless. There's a place on my Seamless account, the magical place where I get my green curry. Okay, we'll have to follow up and insert that. I know, so. we can't gatekeep the green curry. We gotta know. Oh, sorry, I can check, I can check. Hold on, I'll check, I'll check right now. Okay, all right, go ahead, go ahead. Do, 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 do. Um, okay, past stores, I'm on Seamless. Good. How often do you order this green curry? Quite often. Um, it's called <laughs> Thai Terminal. It's on 12th Street in New York. Amazing. I've what never is... been there. Oh, really? And you've only <laughs> ever ordered it? That's yeah. so funny. So it's like a recent <laughs> discovery then in, in no. the last year? Oh, uh, okay. No. No. <laughs> um, what is something that you think everybody should do more of? Mm. Uh, sleep. I was going to say something, you know, more productive than that, but I truly, I think that sleep is deeply underrated and I love sleeping dearly. Mm. What's something that you're currently fascinated by? Shipping containers. Mm. Dramatically transform the entire global trade system and nobody gives the shipping container its due. Also dramatically affected my personal life because my grandpa used to manage shipping container, like um, what would go in them. And then he used to have a 
he used to know a lot of people. That was like a very like social thing that he got to do because he got to meet so many people. And like, he was able to help somebody get into like a social club in Hong Kong, like the owner of this sauce company called Lee Kum Ki. And then that's who my, my mom's entire family, when all nine of them came from Hong Kong to the US, they stayed in his house when they first got here. There's a whole movie to be made. <laughs> I know. I actually feel like my mom's whole story in life is like a movie just waiting to happen and the, the entry point into that movie is like the teenage or not the teenage I'm not a teenager but like the 20 year old finding the journals and then kind of like seeing the story unfold from both perspectives and like the whole point is like seeing how your image of your parents shifts and like what that means when you oh become gosh. an adult I think about that a lot and I think that would make a really good story I just don't know how to tell it, but yes, that's something I want to do. Uh, Yes. What is a ritual that you do every day? I take my dog for a long walk. And I really enjoy that time. I usually listen to an audio book and he and I, you know, venture around New York. He's an Australian shepherd. And so they require some, like they usually require a lot of exercise and he's small. So his, a lot of exercise is like just a long walk. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What um, audiobook are you listening to right now? I'm listening to the series upon which um, the show Expanse is based, The Expanse on uh, Amazon Prime. Um, The first book in the series is called Leviathan Wakes uh, and it's excellent. Mm. What is your go-to comfort food? Green curry. Amazing. And those were our rapid fire questions. Fair. I love it. I love it. Full circle. Full circle. Yes, full circle. Actually, full circle is Scott tries the food. green curry. Scott yeah, tries the green curry circle. from Thai Terminal. Thai Terminal. to your Sunday night dinner for whatever reason. <laughs> there we go. We'll and order next time we have a Sunday night dinner. At the end of it, uh, we make a movie. And then it'll be all full circle. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, that is pretty much the podcast. Where can people find you if they want to look at more of your stuff after this podcast? Oh, sure. I am at Cleo Abram everywhere. Uh, So you can find me on Instagram. I spend most of my time making stuff on TikTok right now. Uh, Vox is also on TikTok. Little plug at Vox.com just launched. It's going really well. Um, And then on Vox's YouTube, that's where I publish a lot of my stories. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, for being so generous with your time. I've had a really good time chatting with you. This was lovely. Thanks for having me. And that's the pod. That's the pod. I missed saying that. Um, Rory, we usually, in the outros of these episodes, if you're new to Edamame, we do a few quick life updates on me and Scott's part. And then we also talk about our takeaways from the episode. Um, and we had some time to sit with this one. So I feel like, yeah, even, even a couple months later, we've really learned a lot. Um, but first, Scott, I want to know if you dressed up for Halloween. That was actually a pressing question on my mind. Oh, wait, my answer is going to be so boring because kind of not really. I went to one little, like, office party thing and put together a last minute outfit for context listeners I'm still living out of a suitcase I'm not trying to like buy a lot of things so like it doesn't really make sense to get something that I'm gonna wear for a single night so I tried to think of what I could make and I'm still living pretty minimally so I don't know what 
I could do besides like, okay, if I wear all black, what can I do? And I ended up being like one half of a, like a matrix duo. But initially going into the evening, I was going to be like pepper, like looking for salt or whatever. So Ooh. not very exciting on my end. But no, what you? but I'm all for that because Halloween is like so bad for the environment because people are buying costumes yeah. that they literally are for three hours. Um, full disclaimer, I was prepared to like buy fairy wings on Amazon and just didn't do that solely because like they were literally sold out by the people, the American people nationwide on the hunt for fairy mm-hmm. wings. But mm-hmm. I ended up being um, like a granola girl, like just like a crunchy, like nature girl. And mm-hmm. the the concept was like, like I had a vest and I like safety pinned up like a an empty granola package that I had and then I wore my Patagonia shorts and I went on on the town and I was like hey guys do you know what my costume is and like let me tell you not a singular person did so it is what it is but that was my fun question fun and then just another little fun life update for y'all Joanna and I are going to be seeing each other this weekend oh my gosh yes oh my god we will be in New York we will be watching Olympians on mm. the gymnastics floor. It's really exciting. We're excited yeah. for it. Um, but like, we'll just dive into some reflections. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I wanted to say first was, I think it's interesting listening to an August version of yourself because I kept thinking about yeah. all these questions that I wish that I had asked. Yeah. Um, and to realize how fast you change and grow. Yeah, fun. that is really fun. And it's also, I think it's stressful to like listen to yourself talk for so long. Like that's just like, it's it's tough, but I think that we are like getting better at this podcast thing, which is exciting. Oh, that's speaking of another takeaway, I guess. Like I thought it was interesting how she was talking about how um, she, the daily, recording herself daily helped her with her kind of presence. Yeah. Similar, I mean, this is just audio, but that's something that I want to be better at is like being less stiff in real life because I think a lot of the times people initially perceive me to be very serious even though when they get to know me I'm not serious at all and I think trying to get better at like being physically more like comfortable and personable is like equally as important as you know the non-physical aspects of being personable yeah I was gonna say that as one of my takeaways too like I really admire Cleo's ability to like learn things or like want to learn things and then just like put that into action just with like that like becoming a more personable like host and she was like yeah you know every day you do it you get better at it same thing with like Mm -hmm. learning animation or just discovering video journalism and then throwing herself into like making that happen for her yeah like I am just so inspired by that because I am like a really curious person and I'm just in college. So like the big thing on my mind right now is like, oh my gosh, like what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Like on a daily mm-hmm. basis, like it just matters a lot to me. Just like thinking about like, what are the things that I like to do? What are the things that I like to learn? And like um, what she was saying about having, you know, she was, she grew up in DC with like, you know, the career paths are like, oh, you work in politics, you're a lawyer, doctor. They're very kind of just like set in stone or that's what was familiar to her and then discovering oh my god there's so many things that you can do there's so many things that like will bring you joy and that you're curious about like I just really love that like and I and I love to learn so I don't know I was just feeling very energized by the conversation in general yeah I also really liked that tidbit that she went to school of visual arts to try and learn animation and video editing because she really wanted to and she she figured out okay like what are the tools that I need to do to make this happen for myself and she just did it that was really inspiring 
And I yeah. also just speaking of things that we admire, like I just really admire how she makes things so digestible. Like even yeah. answering things about her personal life, she just makes everything so easy to understand. Yeah. Um, which obviously comes with practice because her whole job is explaining things. But I just was, um, that was very inspiring. Yeah, it, that's just skill, you know? Like she's like built uh-huh. that over years of like being an explainer of things, which is awesome. Uh-huh. Another thing is she's just like really thoughtful about everything and how the context or like how situations and contexts you're placed in affect behavior, if that makes sense. Like it was so clear that like she was so intentional about using Sunday night dinners as a tool to like create this intimate space that didn't necessarily involve going to a bar because she doesn't drink, but she wanted to like find a space to kind of have like a low pressure environment to get to know people um, and knows that she does better in those kinds of situations that are maybe more like intimate and conversational. I thought that that was so interesting. And like, not letting yourself have to mold to what is like conventional for socializing and finding ways to make things for yourself that fit. Like she's just so intentional about how she can like create things for herself that she needs. And I was just very inspired by that. Yeah, I really admire that. Like, I think that like something I've been thinking about lately is just like, I need to like know myself better and what's like good for me versus like what's not good for other people. Because I have this just like obsession with just like, wanting to be normal or wanting to like or dislike all the same things that everybody else likes or dislikes but there are definitely like just like spaces where I feel more comfortable things that I want to do with my time like I should just make that happen mm-hmm. for myself so yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it kind of also just goes along with how she chose to do her wedding which was just yeah. so interesting and when she was talking about how she did the like Quaker style for the speeches I don't know just very inspired by the kinds of like lifestyle choices that she has and it was mm-hmm. just such a treat to have her on the podcast. Yeah, clearly, if you're listening, we're like such fans of you. And like after we finished recording, like directly after we were just like sitting with it, we were like, wow, we learned so much. And now even a few months later, I'm still like, oh my God, I like literally learned so much. But I hope you did also, listener. Yes, we hope you did too, listener. Um, and if, you're, if you want to continue hearing more from her or learning more from her, you can find her everywhere at Cleo Abram. Mm-hmm. And also, if you want to continue learning from us, find us. Because, you know, <laughs> why would you not? <laughs> All of our socials are linked in the description. Find us. Find Listen us. us. Yeah. Watch us. Love us. Choose us. <laughs> Pick me. Choose me. Okay. Love me. Anyways, okay. there's some exciting stuff in store for Edamame. We always say that. As is every because it's always true because it's producer, always true because Edmonton is amazing yeah and we're excited to bring you more content and this is just the start of our next little you know stuff that we give you <laughs> this is <laughs> okay. the next section of our little stuff uh, that doesn't we really give make you. any sense I was like this is the next little chapter of our journey but it's like yeah that sounds so cliche <laughs> alrighty see you on the flip side Bye. Okay, bye.